Chapter 9 Desire and the Good Heart Recovering Our Deepest Longings Love is the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. The poet Robert Frost Desire is the very essence of man. Baruch Spinoza, Dutch philosopher Recovering Desire Contemporary Christianity often urges us to forsake our desires and calls it taking up the cross. As John Eldred says, quote, the church kills desire and calls it sanctification, end quote. There is the injurious assumption that in order to take up your cross, you must usually deny what you most deeply want. Just do what God or the church wants you to do, whether you want to or not, always and without question. Now, of course, obedience is critical, and God warrants our highest allegiance. Obedience does demonstrate our love for God. And there are times when what we desire is not in God's best interest for us or for others. Yet notice the assumption behind the obedience that rejects desire approach. God wants your dutiful robotic obedience. Love is solely an obligated and compelled compliance. The deep longings of your heart are not important to him. Just obey. Is this how God wants to be loved? Doesn't God want to be desired? Is this how you want to be loved? Don't you want to be desired? rather than robotically obeyed by those under your care, by your children, your friends, your employees? Rather than prodded into duty, we find that those who experience the wild affection of God don't need to be told to love or to do the right thing. Misunderstanding Like and Love We often talk about the distinction between like and love. For instance, I'd like to move here, or I'd like a more meaningful job, or I'd like it if my spouse felt more strongly about this issue. We say that you can't always do the things you'd like or want to do, but you better do all the things you should do. In other words, the loving thing to do. Love gets tied to shoulds, and like gets tied to selfishness. Now, certainly, there is some truth in this. There are, of course, actions that are the loving thing to do, whether or not I want to do them. I might not like disciplining my children, but a refusal to firmly guide them would not be the loving thing to do for them. And to do all the things I'd like to do may not, in fact, be in my or anyone else's best interests. However, to view like and love in constant opposition to one another creates a distortion of both. In other words, we'll soon see love as something we do only because it is the right thing. Love devolves into a mechanical obedience devoid of desire, and therefore of heart. This view pits love and like against one another assuming that our likes, or our desires, will always tend to be selfish and poorly motivated. But like is not the enemy of love. 
God doesn't merely tolerate us. He wants us. He likes us. Remember, we are now likable new creations. Wouldn't it be more consistent with our understanding of the new heart to say that through our renovated hearts, God has transformed our likes so that he can now give us the deep longings or likes of our hearts? Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart? Yet most Christians are repeatedly told that we really don't delight in God, so how could he give us the desires of our hearts? After hearing that message over years, we'll begin to believe that we don't really love God, and perhaps never will. But this is not what Scripture indicates. Equipped with a new and pure heart, your best desires are now for God. Those desires may be buried or long ignored, yet He is now your deepest longing. You really do have a thirst for God. As Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Because of the new desires residing in your new heart, even your likes can become the very means by which you bring delight to Him. The very thing you most want to do can be precisely His will for your life. The desires of our heart have been sanctified. If Jesus comes to redeem, then he has come to redeem the whole person, including our desires. Lover or Statistician In fact, God longs more deeply than we know. Does he not desire you? God doesn't simply need you. He wants you. You're not merely useful to him. You are his prize. Surely God doesn't love us simply because it's the right thing for him to do. Don't we know people who have lost vitality because they have lost desire? Don't they seem distant, unengaged, like they've lost something? Jesus was anything but disengaged. Perhaps Jesus suffered greatly because he desired greatly. God desires because he is a lover, not a statistician. He does not make decisions or move towards us based upon cold calculations and optimal outcomes. Neither should we. Isn't the Song of Solomon a parable of God's visceral longing for us? When I met my wife and got to know her, I married her because I wanted her. She was the fulfillment of those things I most deeply desired in a woman. I was able to recognize this only because I was aware of what I most deeply desired. People who don't know what they want can never find what they want. In fact, during my dating years, friends would suggest I was being too picky, too choosy in my specific longings for a mate but I held firmly to my desires. Later, God confirmed all this within a year or so into our marriage. With beautiful clarity, he whispered, Here she is, Jim. I honored your specific desires. In fact, I also wanted precisely this kind of woman for you. Here she is. Do you notice the sweet conjoining of my desires and God's desires? 
Since God will not dismiss our heart's deep longings, why should we? Discerning Desire Certainly we need to be mature in discerning where any particular desire stems from. Desire can come from our good hearts, or desires can rise up from our old nature, or be whispered to us by our enemy. I remember the time when my wife and I were leading music at a retreat for teenagers. One of the adult leaders was, quote, being real with the crowd of students as she discussed her recent divorce. She justified the decision to get divorced because, quote, God wanted her to be happy. She made no mention of infidelity in the marriage or abuses that would justify intervention or abuses of any kind. She simply implied that her personal happiness was being violated. As I listened, I thought that perhaps God wanted her to be whole and not simply happy. Isn't wholeness, joy, and wellness more substantial and less fleeting than happiness? Clearly this woman's rationale came from somewhere other than God, and it was a position she not only made public, but was legitimizing in front of a crowd of teens who looked to her for guidance. This dear woman had a good heart, yet was not living from it while she used God to justify her need to be divorced and supposedly happy. Was she listening to another voice, a whisper from the dark, her old nature, the world, a combination of the three? In any case, not all desires proceed from a person's good heart. We all know of people, including ourselves, who have made foolish choices from a place other than their good heart. Yet, while keeping the need for discernment in front of us, it is sadly true that many Christians have been taught to abandon the desires of their heart. Packhorse Christians Many of us who have been Christians for a while believe our job is to be God's pack horse. Our duty is to pull our fair share of the load and be useful to God. After all, isn't it our rightful obligation in return for all that He's done for us? The church loves pack horse Christians because those folks are the ones who keep the ministry machinery running. They're the people you can count on. These good people will jump in to fill any need, even if it kills them. Serve on this committee, run this event, take on this project. And your heart? Does it matter amidst all this spiritual activity? Does what you desire ever matter? Do you even know what the deep longings of your heart are after all these years in service? The Long Road of Desire the particular way in which my own heart has been wounded over the course of years centers around the dismissal of desire. There's a distinct pattern to my journey in which the accompanying message of painful events has been, what you desire doesn't matter. You will do what you're supposed to do. Yet there is a scripture that brings me great hope. Psalm 20 verse 4 says, May he give you the desire of your heart, and make all your plans succeed. Notice what the assumptions in this verse are. God wants to grant you your heart's desire, 
There are, of course, desires of the flesh, the old self, but we're not talking about those. We can now ask God to fulfill our heart's desires because the passions and appetites that came with our new heart are good. And can I say again that God wants to grant the deepest longings of your heart? Why else would he lead us into such hope and yet not have any intention of fulfilling those longings? Sometimes God grants our desires on a timetable to our liking, but sometimes the way God fulfills those deep longings is not the speedy path of the hare, it is more like the laborious and plodding path of the tortoise. And the reason is this, the path of the hare would lead us into unnecessary misery and would not bring us what we long for. Let me show you how this is working in my own life. As an author, it is all too easy to assume that success occurs when a major publishing house picks you up, or when you get an endorsement from someone who would give you good exposure. Or there is the assumption that a successful author has a calendar continuously booked with speaking engagements or media interviews. There's another tempting expectation that goes like this. If more and more people buy my books, more people will want my expertise. As I get more and more attention, it must mean I'm having a greater and greater impact. More attention and exposure means greater influence for the kingdom. Then I noticed a similar situation in scripture where Jesus assumes just the opposite. Jesus has just played caterer to 5,000 people at a hillside picnic where he stuns the crowd by taking a few fish sticks and rolls and feeds Woodstock. But what caught my attention this time was how Jesus handled his own publicity. As John 6 says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. If you were offered the promotion of a lifetime, or were able to get in on the inner circle of an organization, or meet someone who could give you instant, far-reaching exposure, how would you respond? Yes, I'm in. Let's jump in running. Would we have the level of matured restraint to say, Wow, I'm deeply grateful, but it's not yet my time. Jesus' reluctance to seize the opportunity is remarkable. Just as the crowds press in to give him all that he is entitled to, and he is entitled to be their king after all, he hides. It says, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, Jesus restrains himself rather than plunging into all that is rightfully his. He avoids the accolades, the exposure, the opportunity for greater influence, and he withdraws from it. But Jesus, don't you know this move would be good for you? It would advance your mission, gain you exposure, and... Perhaps the timing wasn't right. Perhaps other factors needed to unfold before proceeding with the next phase of his mission. Perhaps he was listening to better counsel. And Jesus had an uncanny confidence in his father's ability to bring him all he needed at the right time. 
In fact, just one chapter later, Jesus' own brothers suggest he start marketing himself better in order to gain more exposure with the people. As John 7 says, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public speaker acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. You'd think Jesus' brothers were devising the optimal campaign strategy for their brother. Jesus, your networking skills need a little polishing. Here's what we think you ought to do. As I reflected on Jesus' unsettling tactics for advancing his cause, I felt the merciful rescue of God for me. I felt God was trying to spare me from a great loss. Though my heart has endured a good deal of painful waiting, years of waiting, for the fulfillment of my calling, I knew God was rescuing me from the early collapse of all I hoped for. The truth is, God does not immediately give us all we long for because, unlike Jesus, we often don't yet have the strength of heart to enjoy those desires. It's not that our hearts are bad, it's that they are fledgling. We're still greenhorns. Too many people have received too early exactly what they wanted, and what God eventually wanted to give them, and it ruined them. Their hearts, though pure, were not trained to deal with the costs of their calling, and every calling has its costs. Desire has its costs. So God waits, mercifully, and in the meantime, he raises us up to the level at which we can live gloriously in all we most deeply want. Addiction and Desire Addictions are an attempt to fulfill often legitimate desires on our terms. The addiction is actually a form of compromise, for we demand relief in a manner that preempts God's commitment to give us life in abundance. Were we to believe that God really wants to honor our deepest desires, those he himself has deposited within us, we might be less demanding and less addicted. Most of us don't really believe that God wants to give us the desires of our hearts. Yet John Eldridge, author of Desire, poses a question to us when he says, Do your desires have a future? End quote. If we take God's promise to both create and fulfill our deepest desires, those that are most unique to our hearts, wouldn't we answer with a resounding yes, my desires do have a future? So how do we respond to those unholy desires of the flesh, or to the whispers of the enemy? Because we've been recreated at the level of the heart, we can now say that that temptation, thought, or conclusion is not my heart. That's not really what I most deeply desire. When I find my thoughts or actions going in a direction I don't want them to go, I can confidently say, that's not who I am. That's not what I really want. In fact, that is the most honest thing I can say. For example, I observe an attractive woman and find my thoughts going in a dangerous direction. To think of that woman in an inappropriate way is not my true heart towards her. 
It's also not my true heart to betray my marriage. It's not my heart to lust. It's no longer who I am. As I recognize this, something shifts in me almost immediately, and I feel stronger, more hopeful, more resistant to the old ways. Why? Because I am now choosing what is most true of me. Just the opposite happens if I don't believe that I have a good heart. If I believe those thoughts really are the desires of my heart, then my shame increases, hopelessness increases, and I don't have a fighting chance. I've become enslaved by my false assumptions about my heart, and I've already lost the battle. When I find myself using food to bring comfort and distraction, I can now say, turning to food to meet this need isn't what I really want. Doing this leads to more shame, more struggle. It won't lead to the life God has for me. This is not what I want. Why am I doing this? Is it because I'm lonely and need meaningful community for my soul? Is it because I don't have a sense of compelling mission and something to fight for, something to engage my heart, mind, and strength? These are all questions we can ask. God, show me how to meet this need, even if imperfectly for now, in a way that leads to life. The Desire Underneath the Sin When faced with temptation, some helpful questions to ask oneself are, What's the truth and good desire beneath my undesirable thoughts or behaviors? What is it that I'm really looking for? What do I most want now? What are the passions of my new heart? And once I discover what I most truly want, I ask God, How can I fulfill those good desires in a healthy way, in a way that brings life? Most of our destructive behaviors are actually misguided attempts to fulfill good desires, or the indulgence of good things used beyond their intended purpose. As philosopher Kenneth Boulding says, We must always be on the lookout for perverse dynamic responses which carry even good things to excess. It is precisely these excesses which become the most evil things. The devil, after all, is a fallen angel. End quote. We want life, but are going about it by cancerous means. What we want is to be truly alive, even in our struggles. Our choice is to pursue that life in a way that actually leads to wholeness and goodness, to pursue it in ways God has designed for our hearts. And God fulfills those desires in deeply personal and person-specific ways for each of us. He knows the language of our hearts, our native tongue, as songwriter David Wilcox says. Releasing Our Desires It is important to keep two things in tension simultaneously. First, your heart's desires really matter to God often more to him than to us. Secondly, you must release those deeply held desires to him so that they don't become the object of your deepest devotion. Our desires will quickly become our idols if they aren't released into God's capable hands. Yet notice that though we are to release them, we are not to dismiss them. We are not abandoning our desires, 
we are simply asking God to be our first devotion, our highest desire, rather than allowing His gifts to us to take first place. After all, it is the giver we want the most. My children want and need me more than the treats or delights I can give them. If we cannot enjoy God Himself, our fulfilled desires will fail to bring the rich satisfaction God intends, because we've asked the gift to become something only the giver can be to us. When we bring false expectations to our desires, even legitimate ones, even when God fulfills them, they will disappoint us, because they are not our lover and friend himself. And you do want God, you do love Him. I know this is true about your good heart. So do not lose heart, friends. Our deepest desires are close to God's heart. He has given us permission to desire again. <laughs>